Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode five of Hunter Gatherers. We have back to share his uh, experiences here. It went so well in episode four that we have Ivan Tacey back. And of course, a tech win as always, joining us from Kuala Lumpur. And uh, yeah, that's probably the lack least exciting intro I've given in the last five episodes. So there's, there's no redoing it. Let's just continue. Welcome. Hey guys. How's it? We, uh, we're here again. We survived the transfer of power between, um, the most powerful, most dangerous man ever to walk the face of the earth. And now the savior of the planet and all uh, free beings who, who, uh, who believe in democracy, right? We're, we're safe now. <laughs> Not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's really good that uh, Trump is gone, but I think, um, I mean, I don't think the entire world's going to change. It's probably good for Americans, but um, I'm not sure if, um, if foreign policy is going to change much or anything like that. Well, just before we get into maybe some of your research, um, maybe we could just speak about uh, state people versus non-state people. Some people don't even know that they are that they live in a state. Some people don't know that there are non-state people and that such life once existed, uh, and that it might be very much preferable to being a state uh, citizen. Mm. That's a good point. Um, I think um, the, you know the Batak. Uh, the people that I worked with, they are well aware they live uh, within the state. And they actually talk about kind of different times. So um, they talk about the uh, Masa Japun, which means the Japanese era, when the Japanese took over, Masa British. Um, and so they've known that they've been kind of in a within a larger state polity for a, for a long time. And they know that the rulers of those states change. Um, however, the way um, in the past, because there was so much more forest and, you know, you didn't have the roads going through, the railway, the railway that was built in, I believe, the 1920s, 1930s in Malaysia. Before that, people could really avoid the state. And I think one way of uh, thinking about people like the Batek and many and many other hunter-gatherers, and not just hunter-gatherers, many other indigenous peoples, peoples we classify as indigenous peoples now, they were kind of state-avoiding people. And they, uh, they were well aware that downstream, you know, people live differently than them in, in, in towns and, um, and, and, and practice agriculture and so forth. And they deliberately, I've got cramp. They deliberately avoided joining those polities. So in that way, they're state evading or state avoiding people. And um, the American, he's kind of an anthropologist and an agrarian uh, studies researcher, James C. Scott, has written a lot of excellent stuff on this topic. Um, I'm just trying to find one of his books here. I, ha I have it actually. Uh... Art of Art of Not Being Governed. I have that one, yeah. Yeah, it's a great book, and he's written a lot about this. And also my, my supervisor, Kenneth Salanda, wrote this book, Anarchic Solidarity, Autonomy, Equality, 
and Fellowship in Southeast Asia, which came out about the same time, which is fantastic. And you've got some writers of you know, some people that worked with Orang Asli and various groups in Borneo in there. But I think this is a really important point, Philip, that you know, people haven't always lived in state societies. And the reason that people like the Batek didn't join their downstream Malay neighbours, for example, is because they didn't want to go into that kind of lifestyle. They, they saw it as a loss of freedom, you know, and they still do. They don't want to lose this freedom and this... They see if they join there, you know, they'll have a more hierarchical society. There are more... Conflicts, um, absolutely, and uh, more responsibilities. Yeah, they're not gender egalitarian. Um, they see more violence. Um, so all these things, they think, well, if we carry on how, living how we live... We don't have those kind of problems. We don't, and I mean, things even down to the notion of kind of private property, whereas, of course, land rights is a huge issue uh, in Malaysia, in Amazonia, in lots and lots of places, because currently forests are being destroyed and other environments that indigenous people live with, including the, the Arctic Circle now, being destroyed and opened up to mining, to, um, to plantations, and so forth. Um, but before that, people were pretty free in these places, and they saw themselves, like Batek, kind of see themselves as kind of custodians or guardians of mm. these areas, rather than owning them in a, in a mm. Western sense. You know, and and, and also being part of it, having a responsibility to continue being part of it, they can't really see themselves as not being a part of that space, the, the forest or so on. They often call themselves forest people, you know, yeah. if, if they are forest dwellers indeed. Um, what I meant about people who don't realize that they're in a state are usually the people who are state citizens. They're, I'm a free person. I can do whatever I want, but, you know, just stop, try, try not to pay your taxes that go to funding the, the, the military that uh, is uh, getting the supply of fuel that is powering your, you know your your way of life there then you re suddenly realize that you're very much uh, being controlled by the state and i think more and more people are becoming aware of that and sort of tuning out of the polarizing discussion of you know it's it's about left versus right and there's a there's a there's a whole type of existence that uh, isn't being accounted for in, in the mainstream debate that just doesn't exist. And they're usually pointed out to be, um, you know, to inferior peoples who need some sort of paternalistic help uh, to, to reach our, you know, these levels of modernity and uh, mm. of standard of living. Any thoughts, Tequin? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I wonder if, if we could transition a bit to the forest because you, you did mention this idea of the, the Batek being forest people and, uh, and that's, that's something that I'd be very interested to examine and, and hear from uh, Ivan about his work with uh, multi-species ethnography, basically looking not just at the Batek uh, but uh, also the plants and animals that they live with and their relationship with them and how they, you know, sort of fit in. Um, and so it's like, um, you, you, I mean, I guess the transition is we talk about this kind of idea of a state, which is really quite an abstract thing. And it's really about, well, people living downstream more or less. 
But then uh, if you talk about Malaysia and the Malaysia that, well, the, up until very recently, Malaysia was more or less completely covered by forests. And unlike the state, the forest is a lot more tangible. And yet um, yeah, the definition of what is a forest is, uh, is, is quite contested. And, and it, yeah, it's something I'd like to, to discuss. But maybe if we could start off with uh, 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 hearing more from Ivan about what the, what is this? Uh, is, is it a new discipline of uh, you know multi-species ethnography? Is it anthrozoology? How 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 do you how do you refer to it, uh, this uh, this kind of trend in the social sciences to look beyond people? Okay, right. So, shall I start with that point then? Okay, so multi-species ethnography um, is, a is a development across, across the social sciences, I would say. Okay, so you had an article written by Stefan um, Helmreich and Evan Kirksey called The Emergence of Multi-Species Ethnography. You've also got lots of people like, for example, Anna Singh, Donna Haraway, um, all kinds of different authors who suddenly started getting interested in more what we could call more than human worlds. Okay, another person, a scholar, who's actually an anthropologist, Eduardo Cohn, who wrote um, How Forests Think, which is an excellent book, okay, based on his, um, his work with indigenous peoples in, uh, in Amazonia. Okay, so of course, when you read standard. Uh, ethnographies written by anthropologists, you, you have animals in there. You know, people are, you know, um, could be uh, pastoralists who are cattle herders, for example, the Nua, yeah, of Africa, or you've got hunter-gatherers, of course, they're hunting animals um, or collecting things, animals like turtles and so forth. However, the kind of, the animals themselves weren't really, they were kind of written about almost as if they're kind of objects or just part of the economy. You know, you talk about hunter-gatherer economies or pastoralists' economies, herders' economies. But the people, whether we're talking about hunter-gatherers like Bateks or, or animal herders um, or, uh, or Arctic peoples like reindeer herders, for example, um, they have very, very close relationships with animals and often don't, well, in general, don't see animals as objects in the way that animals are often objectified, if you like, in, in Western societies, and not just Western societies, in, in many other societies, okay? So you think about animals as things that you consume. You know, you, you kill an animal and you transform it into meat. It becomes a commodity or something you can eat. Um, of course, hunter-gatherers do eat animals, but they also often relate to animals as persons. So that sounds a little bit strange, so I'm going to try and not be too academic, but try and explain what I mean there. So for example, if you're, let's imagine a young Batek man or woman's walking in the forest alone, probably, stays in the forest, and there's a, they've told me many times that, you know, this kind of knowledge comes to you when you're alone. You can't go out seeking the knowledge. It will just come to you if, if, 
if you're humble, if you like, okay? So you're in the forest and you go fall asleep in the forest and you dream, okay? And you dream of, uh, the, let's say, the turtle person or the monkey person or the gibbon person, whichever person you're dreaming. When you encounter this spirit of the animal, okay, you don't encounter them as an animal. So the turtle person does not look like a turtle. They look like a human, a very beautiful human, with some kind of defining characteristic that a telltale sign, if you like, that lets you know they're they're actually a turtle. Okay, um, or if, if it was a, if you're dreaming a siamang or a gibbon person, that they will have some kind of sign. Okay, and when you meet that person, you communicate them with using human language. They will generally teach you perhaps songs or the medicinal values of plants or something like this. And this, these friendships develop and you'll meet that person again and again. So, for example, if I'm Batek and I encounter, let's say, a turtle person and I dream of them and they're teaching me this knowledge, after that, obviously, I think it's obvious because it's really logical, you will no longer eat any members of that species. Okay, so it's taboo, a personal taboo for you to consume turtle meat afterwards, Yeah. Okay, a second way that personhood emerges is actually through what we call naming practices. So, of course, all the animals of the forest have, have names, and um, but they also have what we call trick names, okay, or camouflage or disguise names. Yeah, so and this you don't just find amongst the Basset, you find amongst lots and lots of other indigenous groups. Okay, and so if you're walking through the forest, and let's imagine you, you know, you're watching, you're you're going blowpipe hunting, for example. If you spoke the ne- the true name of an animal, that animal will understand you, and if it's prey, will flee. If it's a predator, for example, uh, or a powerful animal like an elephant or a predator like a tiger, and it hears its name, it will come to you and it could attack you, attack you for example. Okay, so you use trick names, they don't understand. So, for example, a bow, which means the big one for uh, gadja, which is an elephant, if you're walking through the forest and, you know, maybe you've seen a sign that elephants have been moving through and elephants can move very quickly in the forest. They're, they're quite dangerous, okay? And they can move surprisingly quietly in a forest. But you wanted to warn people you're walking with, you would say, oh, look, what a bow, you know, so the, the, you know, the elephant's been through here or the big one's been through here, let's go that way to avoid him kind of thing, Yeah. So that's another way of concealing personhood because you or because you want to either hunt an animal or avoid an animal, okay, or not draw attention to the fact you're in the forest. So that's the second way. And there's an, a third way, um, which is in myths, okay? So in myths, when you talk about the time of creation, okay, um, people and animals and spirits weren't really sharply differentiated. They kind of lived together, and it's not clear really who's who. And this is in Batek. Batek myths, Amazonian myths, South uh, Indian myths, all kind of, uh, uh, Aboriginal Australian myths. So you have stories where, for example, if I can, I tell you a quick story. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So um, okay. So long ago, at the beginnings of time, you know, people um, people were really hungry. And um, they wanted, you know, they were collecting food to eat, but there was there was no fire. You know, they wanted to cook food, and there was no fire. And then, basically, this was because Rusa, yeah, had collected up all the fire and he held it between his antlers, yeah. But Rusa at this time is a 
is a human, if you like. He's still got these antlers on his head, yeah? And um, everyone said, well, can we have some fire so that we can cook some of our meat? And he was like, no, 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 this is all mine. This is all mine. Everyone, with all the different people, which is including animals, were like, oh, come on, share your fire with us. No, no, it's mine. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to share. Then eventually, the clever one, so Kanchil, yeah, the mouse deer, um, he says, oh, you've got loads of lice in your hair. Lie down and I'll de-louse you. I'll take the louse at the end. He goes, oh, thank you. Thanks so much. So he lies down and Kanchil starts taking the lice out of hair. But really, he's taking these embers of fire out of his hair. Okay, and then uh, uh, Russo realises what's going on, starts running. Kanchil holds onto his back and they run through the rice and he's chucking up this fire out, you know, so everyone gets hold of fire. Okay, so after that, people could cook yeah later on people are thirsty they want to drink but uh chankai the frog okay the frog person he's got all the water or people think he's got the water people are like uh he's got it in his big swollen belly if you like and very interesting we've got a very super famous aboriginal australian myth which is almost identical to this with the, with the swollen belly frog who's got all the water anyway um everyone's begging him for water uh, he won't give it to anyone. So there's no, all the rivers are dry, the lakes are dry, there's no water anywhere. Eventually, so the clever one, Kanchil, he just runs up with a sharpened uh, bamboo, stabs it in his back, and then uh, water starts pissing out of the frog. Uh, and uh, he hops off, if you like, but he's kind of human, you know, bouncing through the forest, and water's pissing out of his back and filling in the streams and the rivers, and as they go through, Kanchil names each stream and each river and each waterfall, and that's how um, these very important names of the forest were given, that's how he got water, okay? And this is the final part of that story, so after a while, eventually, um, these kind of what Batek Day would call Halak, but Batek Maya, the groups um, we talk, I've been talking about tech windows more. Um, then these spirits kind of, some of the animals left and they went up to the other world, you know, uh, the upper world. And then on earth, they were transformed into their current forms of animals. Again, okay? humans uh, stayed as they were humans do you see what i mean so it's this great transformation you see very similar stories in amazonia too so in the original state of things we were all living together humans and animals but people's forms weren't exactly clear do you see what i mean so anyway so there's animals as persons again and it's in these dreams and ritual states where people kind of get back to that time of origins where this communication and exchange with animals as possible. So, sorry, I went on a bit long there, probably. Uh, this is this has been story time with Ivan Tacey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that was great, Ivan. Uh, one, one question I have. Um, yeah. the, you mentioned the different types of animals. Do they also have similar beliefs about plants? I, I, I vaguely remember uh, mm -hmm. some of them having... Um, certain types of flowers or yams having spirits as well yeah well take take win um not take win sorry lightuck poe in her book um uh, who's, who's another anthropologist amazing anthropologist worked with batek she talks about how bateks explain that uh, yams can kind of move and walk through the forest so that's one thing they're kind of a bit more animate or they're seen as being 
you know, having more agency than we would normally attribute to a plant. But another one would be a story about um, mimosa, yeah? So this is a Batek Maya story as well. So we were walking along. You know mimosa is this plant whose leaves fold in like this. And mimosa in English and in, in various Indian languages and Malay language, uh, mimosa pudicha, is that how you pronounce it? Um, it closes in, yeah, as, as you brush past it. And I was told by Batek friends that this is because at the beginning, this was a young Batek girl who was really, really shy. And so she transformed and she became this plant. So that's one example. But also things like the fruits of the forest are often personified in similar ways that animals are. And so when Batek's voyage up during soul journeys to ask for... Um, the, the flat, uh, good fruit season, if you like, and they ask for the gods to send down uh, flowers or the spirits to send down flowers, sometimes encountered as, as, as people as well, okay? And there's various other stories about um, plants which kind of personify them, but animals tend to be personified, as, as far as I know, more than plants, but there are, uh, and trees, but, you know... It's not restricted to animals. For example, mountains, um, uh, the word in Batek Maya language is langoi, uh, which is a similar to a hala or chenil spirit, but more powerful. So mountains have particularly powerful souls, but when you encounter them, a ship or a shaman encounters them, again, they look like humans. Yeah? Waterfalls, beautiful places might have similar spirits as well. Okay, river bends. Um, so it's not just about you know, and this you find in lots and lots of lots of other indigenous peoples have very similar ideas too. So it could be plants, could be a, a meteorological system like thunder, for example, is personified. Uh, rain is. Um, mountains are. Certain rocks are. Animals are. Some plants are, and so forth. So the world from a, a Batek's eyes. Is, is totally vibrant and living, you know. And, I mean, you can think back, it, it, for example, Malays, Malay traditional religion, okay, it's slightly different than Batek religion, but you have a lot more personification of nature as well. And also, if you look at Irish, um, Irish folklore, Scottish folklore, English folklore even, it's, um, this is how people all over the place used to think and relate to and still do uh, people name their cars and talk to their cars oh come on you know don't break down on me now stuff like that or they, that's true but people, how often does the car talk back though that's, that's true well yeah. that, i mean that that's perhaps the people would argue that their car does talk back to them oh, you maybe, know, this, yeah. Yeah, in certain ways and the way they treat it. Um, I just wanted to fill in with some maybe um, other examples of that I've come across the, in the book about the Pennon by Wade Davis and Ian McKenzie. Uh, Nomads of the Dawn tells a story of uh, siblings and they, I can't remember what the, the context was, but they had to jump over a stream. And then one, they said, when we cross a stream, what will both be tigers, but one of them fell into the stream and became a crocodile. And then they said, well, you stay as a tiger and I'll stay as a crocodile. And the, we're, but we're still people just in these forms. And from that time on crocodiles, people and, and tigers have had a, they will not attack each other unless humans, crocodiles or tigers behave very badly towards the other. In that case, then it warrants an attack. So it's, it's, and then, then um, maybe on a 
how does this play out in the real life? How does this play out in um, actual relationships and uh, interactions that people have with the animals? I'm curious to, to hear if you've had any experiences with how individuals then act and, and interact with animals. Okay. Yeah. So for example, with very kind of powerful salient animals, like again, let's say elephants, for example, I've witnessed several times people talking to elephants, if you like, as if they're humans, so they can understand. People say, to, said to me, Basic said to me lots of times that elephants understand human language. So, for example, I've seen elephants um, eating from um, areas that Batex have cultivated, some fruit trees, for example. And then rather than just kind of shouting at them, or maybe, you know, there's some quite violent attacks over the world today when farmers meet elephants, okay? The Batex were simply saying, oh, come on, we've grown that food. Please, could you, oh, not please, could you, could you, um, could you leave some for us? It's Do you mind? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's this very, uh, they understand that, you know, the elephants are hungry, they want to eat something, but they're not scaring them away, running up to them, shouting or anything like that. So that would be one example. Um, sometimes when people encounter Gibbons, Endicott's written about this, Kirk Endicott, uh, an anthropologist who worked with the Batek in the 1970s onwards, um, talks about sometimes where, when Gibbons have met, if people kind of been over hunting a bit, then people might see those Gibbons as halat, which means kind of creator beings, yeah? Um, so they would not they would not hunt them. Also, you have a lot of examples of people adopting orphaned forest animals. So a hunter might have killed a forest animal and then it's been left with a little baby that was, you know, for example, a baby monkey. Then they'll adopt that animal and and raise that animal as part of their family. It becomes caben, kin, yeah? And, and, um, and then if that animal dies before it can be re-released into the forest, they would give it a tree burial in the same way as a human would be given a tree burial. Um, Just, uh, I want to also point out that the Penan in uh, Borneo also do something similar where they uh, adopt monkeys into their family. And also, if if people are listening, they want to actually see visual example of this, and, and it's beautiful. In the Human Planet series um, by the BBC, it produced uh, actually oh, a number of years ago now, maybe uh, seven or eight years ago, the Awa people in the Amazon also do this, and they actually show a woman breastfeeding uh, monkeys that were orphaned from hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Batex do that too, Philip. Yeah, yeah. So there's you know, get these very intimate relationships with animals. But then, of course, work will not be killed and eaten. You know, um, so yeah, you've got all kinds of, and also so just through general movement in the forest. You know, Batex might sometimes just watch animals, be curious about them. They know an enormous amount of information about their life cycles their behaviours, the calls they make, their expert mimics of, of bird calls and animal calls. And w- when they're playing music, for example, um, the kind of the Jews harp, a gingong, it's called wow noise it makes. Those sounds will be often played to mimic or or um, how do you, how can you say supplement the sound yeah, to kind of play the sound of a particular animal or bird of the forest. Um, but 
but people are very attuned to the sounds of the forest, you know, and, and, you know, you often hear animals before you see them and you might see an, a, a, one animal moving in a particular way that might um, show you that other animals are approaching. There's all a kind of this web, interconnected web of communication in the forest, you know, um, which is extremely important, yeah. which is then disrupted by outside noises like noisy boats or tourists or chainsaws, whatever you like. Yeah. Progress, development. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tekwin, any thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I'd like to ask, what would you say uh, the Batek feel about themselves, their, their place in, in this, this whole uh, interconnected web of forest beings? Do, do they consider themselves part of it or do they consider themselves separate in some way? Well, like Philip said earlier, their name, you know, they often call themselves Batek, you know, forest people. And um, I mean, if we're talking about groups that uh, that continue on hunting, gathering, or, you know, until people were resettled recently, people are buried in the forest, people are born in the forest, people move every day through the forest. All your food is from the forest. The forest is your school. The forest is your source of identity. The forest is the source of all your mythology. Um, so you're totally embedded within the forest, you know. And like I said earlier, you know, the, the creation stories, you can see that humans and animals were living together in, in the past. So, I mean, on every level, really, people are part of the forest. Um, the, all, the, all the things that they make, their material for material culture, you know, so making bamboo blowpipes, you're making your shelters that you live in in the forest out of the products of the forest. Um, Everything is from the forest. So your whole being is from the forest. So, yeah, it can't... They definitely don't see themselves as separate from the forest in the way that most other people do. Uh, was it the Batek? I, I don't remember if it's in End, one of Endicott's papers or if I'm just imagining it, or maybe it's the Penan. But uh, I think there was something about the either the Batek or Penan saying when they're when they when they no longer have the forest, the world will end, or when they're forced out of the forest. Yeah, that's probably. I mentioned that in my book. Um, Light Up Poe mentions that in her book. In fact, that's the kind of main story arc of her book, yeah? Um, that's, you know, because it starts, her book starts with a showman's story about the world's end because of, um, if you like, the forest being cut down and then the trees not holding the earth together anymore. So this is a, a major trope in Batek's thought that, you know, once the forest's gone or, they're, or the Batek are gone, it's the end, you know, and uh, a lot of Amazonian groups, again, I've used this example a few times, these are really important forested areas in the world. Um, they have very similar ideas, and, but it is, I think that they're not just describing this because they see, you know, of course for them, that, that is the end of the world, if you like, you know, their whole past is a raise where there's a plantations built or something but also if you think about it from a very scientific perspective you know the forest the tropical forests of the world in southeast asia central africa and south america that's the only way that's part of a living system 
planet Earth. You know, without without this, without tropical forests, the entire climate and ecology of the world is totally transformed. You know, you can see at the moment, I mentioned the Inuit earlier, that Inuit was some of the first people in the world to talk about climate change because they saw things were changing, you know? So indigenous peoples, we're kind of, I mean, sitting here in England, we're cut off from this. I can't see the total devastation happening in front of me. Batex and Amazonian groups can see this happening and they see the changes happening to climate. But I think now in the last five, six, ten years, everyone's noticing we're getting, you know, Malaysia, more longer and harder and heavier raining seasons in England, milder winters, periods of extreme drought all over the world. Climatic systems are changing. And that's, I mean, TechWin can talk about this a lot more than me, I imagine. But we're going to see rapid transformations to the world's climate. We're seeing massive um, mass extinctions going on all over the planet. The entire planet is changing. And I think James Lovelock's work about Gaia is really important here because, you know, the Earth is, I think, a living system and it's an interconnected system. And we only realise that as humans or Western science only realise that in very, very recent years. But I think indigenous people... I've known that for a very, very long time. You mm-hmm. know, there's um, an author I like, Charles Eisenstein, and he describes it that um, you know, it's, it's uh, you might we can't just measure climate change by carbon emissions because we miss the point is that it's an interconnected system, and the more we uh, or the more civilization destroys these systems, the ability the, the uh, let's say the the system itself fails. It it goes with un, you know. The, there's a organ failure and there's the, like a human, it, uh, the planet cannot regulate its temperature anymore and it can't, um, its immune system doesn't work, so to say. So it's more that mm-hmm. we, we must look at it more like a being and, and not just look at the carbon levels, but also like we need swamps, we need forests, we need estuaries, uh, delta systems, we need uh, rivers not to be canalized. All these things play an important role in maintaining yeah. a homeostasis uh, or the plant's ability to maintain homeostasis. Yeah, I think it's, that's a really, really good example. And if, if you, for example, if you destroyed part of a rainforest and then you left that, it would, it would grow back. And after a certain amount of time, of course, the longer you leave it, the more it returns to that state. But it will kind of, it will regrow and the animals will move in, plants will recolonize that area and so forth, yeah? Any, any ecosystem like that will happen. And but humans. If you too much, mm-hmm. it can't do it. But that's like with your body. This, Batex often use the metaphor of the body, okay? So if you, if you cut my arm, okay, with a knife or something, if it's not cut too badly, my body can, can heal it by sending in, you know, the white blood cells and so forth, to, which is very much like a, how a forest recolonizes, you know, land but if you if you hack my arm off it's not going to regrow you know and so i think that that kind of metaphor is really strong this you know you you can do a certain amount of damage but after a while things simply can't recover what's interesting too when you mentioned that the forest will uh, regrow and uh, animals will return there humans too will return there and not necessarily in the form that 
are the ones that did the destruction, but in a, a human way of living that is integrated into the forest as part of the system itself. And the Amazon, for a lot of people imagine the Amazon is this um, place that was always, you know, this uh, jungle that has been there forever. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that it was uh, very much highly populated and that through yeah. uh, disease uh, in, that uh, spread across the continent uh, after co- uh, initial contact and far extended beyond, you know, where the Europeans actually landed. It just decimated mm-hmm. the, the the continent, and those places became forested again. And the 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 resettlement or the way that humans reintegrated into that new the reestablished forest was as you know, Swidners and hunter gatherers versus. Uh, as a civilized uh, state in state structures where they're very hierarchical and destructive. So humans too are part of this ecosystem and the people you mentioned, the Batek and and other people we've mentioned, they understand that they they can't see themselves as separate from a life. And I think that's in the forest. And I think that's a way to bring up um, what we were talking about earlier is actually maybe that a lot of people can relate to is the film Avatar. It's it, mm. you said a lot of indigenous people that you maybe interacted with like that film or you've heard about. Yeah, I mean, it was quite popular um, because it talks about so many issues that are really happening today, you know, in terms of mining, forest destruction and so forth. But also I think that Cameron, James Cameron, the director, Okay, it's slightly idealized. Of course, it's a film. You know, it's a film that's you know destined for a huge mass public, but the and and some things are slightly exaggerated. But he does attempt to try and talk about this interconnectivity between these these forest dwelling people, or you know, who are aliens in the film, and the forest itself. You know, and and in quite quite realistic you know he's talking about the, or the, the indigenous people in the films like are talking about how their ancestors are buried there how the forest is filled with spirits how they how it's an interconnected system and so forth this is this is pretty accurate i think it i think it's actually a very good film in in most respects you know and i think that's why indigenous people liked it you know it's interesting Often, that how people who watch that no one or most people watch this film and they you know you're obviously the film is made to uh, have you side with the the people of the planet i think they're called the navi or something so with the aliens right no one's siding with the um you know the the humans and like yeah that's that's our team you know good we got we got that planet we extracted their resources good you know and we we got them, uh, you know, trinkets in return. No, it, it, there's something that that we all feel that we're missing. Uh, living, you were saying earlier how we we in like England or here where I am in near Toronto, we don't feel the the destruction. But I, I'd say we do because we live in this this uh, suburban or urban world, even rural world, where we're cut off from from the systems, and we attribute you know, some of the, the, the pains and the difficulties to our relationship with our boss or this or that, or because after, and those things, and that's true. And it's because those things exist with, in, we live in a, in a world that is so cut off from nature. We don't see the destruction because we've been living in a destroyed mm. place that has been destroyed for generations and we just consider it normal. And, and then it actually needs to expand. And that's a whole nother uh, topic but 
we we still long for the connection that indigenous people have to place and to other species and to yeah. And I mean, if you go back to some of the writers of the early 20th century, there were uh, quite a few kind of anarchist ecologists writing at that time who were talking about, you know, the problems of urbanization and destruction of natural environments. But but what they were calling for back then, this is like 100 years ago today, um, they were saying, well, we need to kind of uh, re, we need to bring nature back into the cities and we need, to, we need to slow down urbanization. And so certain areas of the countryside, you know, you need more kind of technological infrastructure there. And so it's this, you know, balancing out of ideas so that cities, you can have bees in the cities, you can have, a, you know, beautiful um, wildlife in the cities instead of having this stark divide between a city, which is all sprawling, uh, concrete metropolis versus you know a pristine natural environment no you can you can actually if you want to live in an interconnected world and this is really true because if you think about migration routes of animals you know if you if you just protect a small area of malaysia as a tiger habitat that's not going to work you tigers need to move elephants need to move so you need interconnected zones of forest it's the same in the sea, you know. You can't just protect random areas of land or sea or swamp or tundra or whatever. No, these have to, these are all parts of larger systems. They have to be connected, you know. So the way we live in the world today really has to be completely rethought. Re- rethought. I'm not saying we all have to go back to living like the Batek at all. Of course, that's not going to happen. But we can take some of their ideas on board and think about, you know, in terms of interconnections or relationships with animals. Why do we treat animals as commodities or things that can be uh, consumed? Why do we treat environments in that way? Is, you know, something wrong with that way of thinking? So I actually have a... uh a meeting. I'm not supposed to tell anyone, but I have a meeting with James Cameron. He's making Avatar two, and then I'm he he wants to know some ideas how how we can improve the film. He he approached me. So uh, if you have any ideas uh, for mm. Avatar two, like what would you what would you uh, suggest to James Cameron? I'll, I'll let him know. Hmm. I don't know. I'll have to think about that one and get back to you. I think. Yeah. Well, well, me personally, I think the uh, the the indigenous people in the film, the Navi, or they they there was something like. Um, uh, the author that I like to um, Charles Eisenstein, he pointed this out about the film too, uh, that there's this sort of force versus force narrative in there. It's like, well, we, we, you know, eventually the evil um, empire the humans are defeated by force by these um, people who just have sticks and stones. And it's very unrealistic. Um, and mm. that, 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 you know, we don't see that happening here. So he would, mm he suggested it would be much more compelling and also useful to us to see that they have the humans in that story have a change of heart and they're, they're compelled to stop what they're doing and actually become, uh, learn say from the indigenous people or, uh, Mm. respect. Well, I think that, I mean, okay, we can tend to, put people off into blocks don't we like the west or yes. you know the americans or whatever of course within america within you know uh, all these western countries there's a lot of ecologists there's a lot of people who, who, who are trade unionists there are 
feminists, there are all kinds of um, different groups who, who are very, very critical of the systems of exploitation that are currently the norm, yeah? So I think it's one way to change things, um, whether this is in reality or portrayed in the film, it has to be through these linkages between different, different groups of people and individuals who are not happy with the way things are. And I think that's an increasing number of people living in England, France, Malaysia, America, Canada, um, who, th who think, yeah, you can't carry on like this. This economic system's completely um, doomed, you know, the way we treat the environment is doomed. And so building links between these different groups and making that part of a larger struggle is extremely important, you know? It's not like one hero is going to save the day or something, mm -hmm. like in a, in a, in a Hollywood film. Uh, and the history's proven, you know, the world doesn't change like that. It's people who work together um, who change the world, whether that's against apartheid, um, against racial segregation in America, to get women's rights, to get more rights for animals. This is, this is long, ongoing struggles. I wonder if we lost Tequin, but uh, Tequin, you still yeah. there? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I was just kind of uh, getting my thoughts together. I've, uh, and and uh, you prompted me just at the right time. I, I kind of got um, a few different threads from what uh, Ivan was talking about earlier. And it has to, be, to do, first of all, about what it is to live inside a forest and also what it is to live on a planet more broadly, you talked about uh, Lovelock and uh, the Gaia theory as well, Ivan. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, in a way, it's you could say it's just uh, terminology or wording, but I think it, the broader point is actually quite important in that if we change our thinking, instead of thinking that if we go for a walk, for example, if you go for a walk in a forest, hmm. we're not actually going for a walk through the forest so much as while we are there, and say if we camp overnight, um, the, the time we are there, we are actually part of that forest. And and similarly, if you take the broader perspective that we are not uh, living on a planet, we are not living on planet Earth. We just, we actually are part yeah. of the planet. Um, yeah. So, uh, would you have any comments on that kind of like perspective? Uh, would you would you say it's accurate uh, for the for the Batek, and would it uh, apply more generally? Do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree. And I think this leads us right back to the, some of the points I raised at the, right at the start of, uh, of this podcast, okay? So if you think about people's relationships um, to the world or to land or sea or whatever, uh, um, it, for a Christian, it would be inconceivable, yeah, to, to trash a church or part of the holy land, yeah, okay? Or for a Muslim to trash Mecca, or any of the any of the holy sites for Muslims, yeah. If you think of it from an indigenous people's perspective, that's what they think about the, the forest that they live in. Okay, you know, you you're not going to trash where you live. So it's this. Um, if you can take that understanding and transform the the way that you act in the world and start thinking, well, you know, where I live here in Barnstable in North Devon. 
you should kind of treat that in the same way as the Batex treat their forests. You know, why is it that, I mean, the, the river down the road from me here, the River Tor, used to be filled with salmon. There's none now. Yeah, that's because people have polluted the river and overfished and so forth. That, if you've got this indigenous way of thinking, you wouldn't do that. You couldn't do that, you know. So I think it's people, instead of, this is a problem of world religions, you kind of, one, you don't commune, really, I don't think, with with the spirits or, or the gods, you know, you just lift, you know, you, it's almost like they're in charge and that's it. It's very, it's very separate from them. But also it's this relationship to where you live, you know? So it's um, why you, uh, you know, if you're an English or a French or a Malaysian Christian, why are you just seeing the Holy Land over in the Middle East, okay? Why aren't you seeing, you no know, Malaysia, this is God created uh, the world, we should treat it as something beautiful that, 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 that was created, you know. So it's, do you, do you follow my way of thinking? I'm not saying everyone should be religious, but I'm, I'm saying that if you transform how you think about why you, why you mark certain areas of, of land off as special and not others, it's completely wrong, you know. Every area in your local environment, you should treat as precious. And, um, and also, you know, you can, they can become sources of food. And, um, you know, of course, there's all these kind of ecologists talk about ecosystem services, you know, the way forests clean the air or, or all kinds of different services that I don't like that language, but, you know, ecosystems... That's something I wanted to to bring up actually as you were speaking that the practice of foraging and hunting those practices create it brings you into relationship with the community of plants and animals and uh, uh elements that are around and and foraging gathering hunting when one does that one is one starts to adopt or or this sense of uh sacredness or, or connection to the place like you were describing one can try and have it but if one doesn't engage with the the community of, of plants and animals then it's hard to adopt that because everything is we live everything is uh real estate and um uh, and bylaws basically and it's hard to have the the relationship with with those things um, but when you go and you, you know, this here, every summer, you know, every springtime, these mushrooms come up here and I come to that spot. And if, if that is, uh, turned into a strip mall, well then my, you know, where am I going to get these mushrooms from? And the mushrooms want me to pick them. They, they, they tell me that I'm here every year, come pick me, you know, and I leave some for others. And this sort of, this sort of mindset starts to take place. I, I, I personally, I have that feeling, uh, from the, foraging that I do around here, even if it is in a sort of a suburban place. And I've, I've purposely tried to do more of it, even, even if uh, I look silly to other people or if it sort of breaks some of the, uh, the laws. Well, I mean, Philip, one important thing about what you said there, it's about knowledge, isn't it? It's about, you've got to know where Mm. to go to find those mushrooms that you're picking. You know, you've got to know if you're, if you're going fishing in, in where I live in Devon, you've got to know where the fish are. Um, So this knowledge brings you into 
these places and you get to know the seasonal changes you get to know when different plants um, bloom or or appear or disappear in environments and that only comes through to go back to tech wins point through moving through these places you know and getting to know them in detail you know and so if you don't get out and about um into into the place that you live in you can't know it and you can't have a relationship with it and so that's a really important point i think yeah i i have a thought that i'd like to um the, the question for both of you before we end the podcast and and tech when you can also if you have anything uh, you'd like to bring up before we end or and ivan as well but a question i had was since we were talking about animals um uh, animals, humans, and and the what multi-species or uh, ethnography. Have you had any personal experiences with animals that that would fall into the category, you know, of, of what we're speaking about? You know, having received messages uh, from any animals, and Me. what was that like? Yeah, you and Tequin, yeah. Let take with the first. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a good question, and um, uh, the way I would like to put it is that uh, what I heard uh, in the past applied more to uh, animals, but I'd like to talk specifically about a plant. And then there was this uh, tree, I used to live in a a, a suburb of Kuala Lumpur called Ampang. And there's this tree where um, it had a hole in it. it, And uh, it was a a type of tree that produces incense. It's called uh, agar wood, or the Malay name is gaharu. And I never actually met the the people who made the hole, but uh, what it seemed they were doing was chipping away a little bit out of this tree, and so I, uh, and and that kind of stimulated this incense to form inside the tree. And so I took a little bit of that home with me, and I burnt it, and it it created a, well, yeah, it was a nice incense smell in in my home, but uh, unfortunately, when I went back. That, uh, that like some months later, someone had come along and not only chipped a little bit more at the hole, they'd cut down the whole tree. So I, I felt uh, uh, this is something where well, I hadn't paid for the incense. I didn't buy it in a shop. It was some, it was a tree on the side of the trail in the forest. It was really quite wild, and uh, uh, without sounding too pretentious, I felt that because I had taken something out of that tree, I not only had an obligation to the tree, I. Uh, I then had an obligation to the forest. And I actually had the forest, uh, the stake of the forest and the future of the forest. Uh, I had a, um, a certain responsibility to, uh, to work t- to protect it because it had given something to me that, uh, that I hadn't paid for. I'm not, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but uh, that's, that's my, my, my short little story. Oh, I like that. That's really interesting, Tech Queen. Yeah, guys, I'm really sorry, but I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go now because I've got another meeting. Sure, sure. 
I think it was a, a great uh, session we had here, Ivan. Sorry, cut off for me then. Oh, th thanks for being on the program again. Thanks for uh, coming back on. Well, thanks so much for inviting me back on. It was really great to chat to you both again. Yeah, great session, Ivan. Thanks for coming. Cool, guys. Well, let's speak uh, as soon as possible, yeah? Absolutely. Um, again, uh, any before you go, any papers that you want to... Uh, anyone wants to follow up on anything you said any papers that they can read of yours if they, um, to find my papers i've got most of them online so if they um, google my name ivan tacey t-a-c-e-y um will come up to either researchgate or wikipedia or my wix site and they should be able to download the papers from there That's and is there one specifically that ties into what we were talking about today that uh, might be good ah Oh, yeah. What was the last one that I wrote? Um, I can't remember the title. Is it Animism and Interconnectivity? Is that oh, the well, one? that's the book that I'm okay. currently rewriting. Um, that would be a good one. The book itself will be out hopefully this year, a kind of a new uh, revised version of it, which um, would be hope for, hopefully for a larger public. Um, I'd say that's the best one to look out for, but people might have different interests. So, yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Great. we'll let you go. Uh, Tekwin, I have one more story to share after uh, Ivan leaves, but we'll let, we'll let Ivan go. Thanks, guys. See you, Ivan. Bye, Ivan. Bye, Ivan. Take care. I, I really like the, the tree story. It, um... Yeah, I, I should also mention that there, there are still saplings from that mother tree, even though the mother tree was cut down. So the forest... Fortunately, it's still there. And the, these little seedlings, well, they're, yeah, they're still growing. So the, the challenge is to make sure that the forest as a whole remains. Mm -hmm. the, the, you, know, you could explain that away as uh, just uh, anthropomorphizing the tree and being sentimental and so on. But um, I, I think those are very valuable valuable experiences and and those are the experiences that uh are much more powerful than uh what ivan said uh, that the language that he does personally doesn't even like is uh the ecosystem services and the you know the sort of trying to monetize everything and to make make a rational case for why we should preserve these places and these uh yeah what, what was your story us. you said you had one. yeah so It was a friend of mine who was showing me how to make a shelter, uh, a haya, if you will. A haya, uh, well, we both know what it is, but for listeners, it means shelter in uh, Maya and uh, Batek languages. So uh, we're building, I was building a lean-to, personal one, in, um, in a park near where he lives. And um, it, the parks here are not like the ones in England uh, that we have here in this suburb city parks that are quite still wild. Um, they're not big, but they, they're not very manicured. They might have a, a stretch of lawn. And then beyond that, it's forest. It's just, they just leave alone pretty much. And uh, we were in one of those, you know, on these little coves of forest and we were building this, this shelter and we we're collecting the materials and, uh, He looked up and there was a red-tailed hawk that flew by and it was being chased by two crows. And he, he paused, he looked at it and he said, hmm, I wonder what that means. 
And then we continued building the shelter. And um, a, a while later, I think some children came by and they, they thought it was great. They were so in, interested in what uh, we were doing. They helped, helped build and they kept going away. And then a little bit, a little bit later, a man came out and he was like, what are you doing here? You know, or what is this that you're building? We're building a shelter. And he said, well, you're not allowed to do this. You know, it's going to attract homeless people. It's, you know, stop doing this. And uh, my friend sort of was very upset and uh, confronted him. Like, why should I I live around here? And we're not doing anything wrong. I was more of a uh, observer. And the the man went away, very disgruntled, uh, called the police. And uh, two policemen came and uh, they came talk to uh talk to us and my friend got very uh upset you know and and hurt actually it hurt him a lot that uh someone would call the police and the police came and told us that we had to stop doing this you know the neighbors don't the the people that live near the park don't like it i mean it was a very small shelter i mean it's it's, you'd have to you have to crawl into it and we're going to it's just made out of sticks and and uh leaves but and uh, later, he said, my friend asked me, you know, you remember those, you remember the crow and the the red-tailed hawk? So it was almost like the, well, I don't know what you call it, but um, a message, uh, an omen? Yeah, an omen. The, the, the two police officers being the uh, the crows chasing the, uh, the hawk. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, so that's uh, that's just another maybe uh, example of how what Ivan was saying the, the interconnectivity of the, the forest network and humans mm-hmm. as well, and animals perhaps having more agency than we give them. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's been uh, it's been interesting. It's been another interesting conversation. Yeah, it's great. We should definitely um, have uh, Ivan on again sometime. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, uh, hopefully we get Ai on next week and uh, I think we'll have to switch the timetables. Do you want to give a a, a teaser trailer? Oh, sure. Yeah. So Aya Kawai or Kawai Aya, she is uh, in the Japanese way of naming. Uh, She is an anthropologist from Japan and she also studies uh, and researches, does research with the Batek people in Kilantan, the province of Kilantan in Malaysia. And uh, the paper that I'm reading about hers um, that you've sent to me is about navigating in the forest and how the people there you um, navigate in a very difficult um, place to navigate because, you know, you can't see the stars, you can't feel the wind, you there's no often landmarks are obscured by all the trees in your way. And how does, how do people navigate in the forest and do so very reliably um, for generations? So that's, that personally uh, is very fascinating to me. Yeah. It'd be great to, to have our first non-male guest. And so we've, <laughs> yes. been, we've been quite, a, quite the manal. Uh, Just mansplaining here. Every yeah, episode. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, and we'll do that one maybe at a, the, the, the flip the time zone so that uh, accommodates you guys. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tequin, uh, as All always. Right, thanks, Phil. Yeah, it was a good one.
Absolutely. Until the next one. Bye. All right. Bye, everyone.